So again, if your Bible's open to Jeremiah chapter 13, we're going to spend some time in the next couple chapters taking a look at the word of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah to the people of Judah. Jeremiah spoke to the kingdom of Judah in the days when the 12 tribes of Israel were divided into two different kingdoms. The northern kingdom containing the 10 northern tribes was called Israel, and its capital was the city of Samaria. They had been taken away into captivity some 100 years before the ministry of Jeremiah began. Now what was left was the southern kingdom of Judah, approximate with the two tribes, but a remnant from the other tribes that came over to there when the northern kingdom of Israel went into apostasy. But unfortunately, the southern kingdom of Judah came to the place where they turned their backs on the Lord where they started going after the foreign gods, especially the gods of Baal and Asherah, where they looked to other nations to help them, such as the Babylonians or the Egyptians, instead of looking to the Lord. And in those very dark days in the kingdom of Judah, God raised up a very bold prophet named Jeremiah. He was a young man when God called him initially to his ministry, and he was a man full of emotion. Sometimes people call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. And in the chapters we take a look at tonight, you're going to see why. But yet God called this man to deliver this message that was pretty strong. And that's what we come to right now into Jeremiah chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. Thus the Lord said to me, go and get yourself a linen sash and put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. So I got a sash according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, take the sash that you acquired, which is around your waist and arise, go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a hole in the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. What's a strange command, don't you think? Go and get yourself a linen sash. Some translations say a girdle, some say a sash, some say a belt. Basically what you're talking about is a linen thing that would go around the waist, something that we might call a cummerbund or something like that. It was meant to distinguish somebody as being somebody of importance, something that the priests might wear, something that a person of nobility or dignity might wear. Go get yourself this white linen sash. Now, one thing you need to understand is that the prophets in the days of Jeremiah traditionally dressed in sort of a dark uh, horse hair or camel hair or goat's hair kind of garment. It was rough and it was dark. And we don't know exactly if this is what Jeremiah wore, but it's likely. And if he had this normal thing as a dress, just sort of this black, almost like a monk's habit that you would normally wear, to put a great big white cummerbund around his waist, it would attract a lot of attention, wouldn't it? People go, my, Jeremiah, why are you wearing that white sash? Did you just buy it there? You know, nice accessory. What's going on with this? It was meant to attract attention because God was going to teach an object lesson through this linen sash. And one of the things he told him to do, notice here, verse four, arise, go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a hole in a rock. Now, when he told him to go hide it in the Euphrates, some people have a difficult time believing that God actually meant for Jeremiah to go from his hometown, which was just outside of Jerusalem, all the way to the Euphrates River. You're talking about a round trip of about 600 miles. People have a hard time, did he mean go all the way to the Euphrates River and then come back? Well, I believe probably so. Friends, the book of Jeremiah covers a career of a man's life. 
These are decades upon decades. I think he could take the six months out of his schedule to bring this to pass. So people say, well, no, it was another water source that had the same name as Euphrates, not so far away. Friends, the best and the most logical answer is that God really intended him to take the long journey, and it would be a long journey. It would take months for him to make it. But this is what God called Jeremiah to do. So he puts on the linen sash, never washed. That means it was absolutely white. It was absolutely pure. He was go to the Euphrates. And what was he to do there? He was to bury it in the ground, presumably near the river. Okay, now verse six. Now it came to pass after many days that the Lord said to me, arise, go to the Euphrates and take up from there the sash which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug and I took the sash from the place where I had hidden it. And there was a sash ruined. It was profitable for nothing. Okay, get the picture. Jeremiah gets this sash and he wears it around town for a few days ago. Jeremiah, that's really weird. Look at you. You're wearing this prophet's garment that's all black and or dark hair garment, you know, goat's hair, whatever it is. You're wearing this around. Now you're wearing a nice, white, pretty sash around yourself. Isn't this strange? He goes, yeah, look at me wear this for a few weeks. He wears around town for a few weeks and then he travels all the way to the Euphrates. He comes back after several months. They say, Jeremiah, where's your sash? What happened to it? You left town wearing it. Now you come back, you don't have it. Oh, I buried it at the Euphrates. Well, why did you do that? And he says, I don't know. Let me go back and check on it. So he goes all the way back to the Euphrates. And then he comes back again. And what does he have to show the people of Jerusalem, the people in his city? A, a piece of fabric, a piece of linen that is all deteriorated and rotten and, and smells bad. And, and it's worth nothing. And he holds it up before him. This is my linen sash. Well, what does this all mean? We'll take a look. Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, thus says the Lord, in this manner, I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who follow the dictates of their hearts and walk after the other gods to serve them and worship them shall be just like this sash, which is profitable for nothing. For as the sash clings to the waist of a man, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory. But they would not hear. Ladies and gentlemen, here's the lesson of the sash. Look at what it says right there in verse 9, where it says, in this, excuse me, verse 9, yes, in this manner I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This noble, fancy sash. It was taken away out of Israel, over to the Euphrates, and there it became ruined. Now, friends, it would not become long until the people of Israel were forcibly taken from the land of Judah off into exile across the Euphrates River. This was a pure, pure a, a easy picture, I should say, of their coming exile associated with the Euphrates River. And what was once beautiful, what was once useful, what was once uh, emblematic of nobility and, and, and dignity now was reduced to nothing. And friends, this would be the price that proud and disobedient Judah would have to pay when the judgment of God came upon them. There's some very arresting words right in here. Look at it in verse 10. He says, you shall be just like this sash, which is profitable for nothing. It's as if God had high hopes for the people of Israel. I want you to be for beauty. I want you to be for adornment. Just as a sash is tied tightly around a person, that's how close I want you to be for me. But you didn't want it. 
You rejected me. You refused me. Therefore, you're never going to fulfill your purpose to be something beautiful, something glorious. Uh, think about the kind of thing that a person would wear that would be glorious. You know, an accessory that a man might have. Maybe he has a very fine watch on his wrist. And people notice, man, that's a very fine accessory. Or think about a woman with just one of these really high-class handbags, whatever the brands or the hot things are. You know what they are in their minds. And you take that thing, you take that handbag, you take that watch, and, and you put it in an environment, whether it's the watch, or whether it's the mud or whether and it just becomes deteriorated and useless and you go what a tragedy something that not only could have been useful but could have been beautiful and glorious now it's reduced to nothing and friends that's what a life in rebellion against God is like God has made us so that we could be a beautiful adornment of his glory that's what men and women are when they're in obedience to God That's what men and women are when they walk in the will of God. They are a beautiful adornment of the God on high. But when they reject him, when they won't listen to him, they become profitable for nothing. Look at how he teases this out in verse 10. This is how their sins made them profitable for nothing. First of all, it describes in verse 10, those who refuse to hear my words. That's one way to do it, refuse to hear God's words. Secondly, in verse 10, who follow the dictates of their hearts. That's it. You want to be useful? You want to be profitable for nothing? Follow your own heart. Don't listen to God. Just follow your own heart. So be determined to disobey. Refuse to hear his words. Follow the dictates of your own hearts. And then thirdly, and then walk after other gods to serve them. Friends, that is a threefold prescription for disaster in any person's life. And where will it leave them? Friends, the siren song of the world screams to us and it says, fulfill yourself, find your own way. You know what you're going to end up? You're going to end up like that rotten linen sash, like that rotten handbag, like that beautiful watch that is now good for nothing. God had another plan in mind for them to cling close to him, but they would not receive it. Look at the end of verse 11, those lines, but they would not here because of their stubborn and persistent sins against the Lord. Judah never fulfilled the noble and the beautiful destiny that God had planned for them. They became useless and ruined just like the buried sash. And so it is among God's people or among humanity in general today. Remember that great line from the book of Revelation? And I know I'm quoting it from the, new, from the King James Version because it has this poetic beauty. It says, um, thou art worthy for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are created. When we understand our proper place as a creation under God, that we were created for his pleasure. See, here's the problem. With this picture of the sash, it shows that we were meant to, or, to um, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Not to ordain, to adorn. That's the word I was looking for. We were meant to adorn God. Whereas we think that God was meant to adorn us. Okay, God, you, you, you take my life and make it something prettier. And God says, no, I want to put you as a jewel in my crown. I want you to be something that adorns my glory. That is the proper place of men and women under the will of God. That's a powerful picture, don't you think? The sermon of the sash. Well, if that wasn't enough, let's take a look at the sermon of the wine bottles. Verse 12. No, no fooling. Therefore, you shall speak to them this word. 
Thus says the Lord God of Israel, every bottle shall be filled with wine. And they will say to you, do we not certainly know that every bottle shall be filled with wine? Now, apparently, this was a proverb in the days of Jeremiah. The proverb went something like this. Every bottle shall be filled with wine. And it went something like this. Everything will fulfill its purpose. Everything's going to be good. It's kind of like saying this. It's all good. Every bottle will be filled with wine. Everything's going to be all right. And everything will fulfill its purpose. Now, God's going to take that proverb that was used among the people in Jeremiah's day. And he's going to turn it on Zen. Look at verse 13. Then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of the land. Even the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. And I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, says the Lord. I will not pity, nor spare, nor have mercy, but will destroy them. And God's essentially saying this. You want to talk about wine bottles? By the way, do you understand that they're not talking about glass bottles that we have today? They're talking about earthenware vessels. We would call them jars or vessels that they would hold wine in. But they were earthenware and they could break. And God says, you want to take this proverb that that every bottle shall be filled with wine? Every wine jar shall be filled with wine? You want to take that proverb? Well, let me turn that proverb around on you. Verse 13, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land with drunkenness. You think, well, what is he talking about? I'll tell you what he's talking about. That they will be in a condition of stupor and stupidity when the Babylonians come against them. You know, uh, if you see two guys kind of in a fist fight, and one of them is stone cold drunk, and the other one is sober, put your money on the sober guy. The, the, the drunk guy doesn't have the wherewithal. He's stupid. He's in a stupor. And God says, I'm going to put that upon you when the judgment comes, and you won't be able to stand against it. And then what's going to happen to you, Mr. Wine Bottle? Look at verse 14. I will dash them one against the other. You see, it's like this. He goes, you know, bottles don't only have the destiny to be filled. Bottles also have a destiny to be broken. And this is what's going to happen to you. I'm going to take this proverb and I'm going to turn it around on you to warn you of the coming judgment. Now, with verse 15, we suddenly come to a different place. Verse 15 sounds so hopeful, but I think that verse 15 is Jeremiah's prophetic imagination of how the people of Judah should repent. Notice the sincerity of this repentance. He says this, hear and give ear. Do not be proud for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he causes darkness and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains. And while you are looking for light, He turns it into the shadow of death and makes it a dense darkness. Here's a third picture he uses. The first picture was of the linen sash. The second picture was of the wine bottles or the wine jars. The third picture is of the mountain traveler. And basically what Jeremiah is saying is repent and get right with God before darkness falls and you're traveling in the mountains. Now, friends, you and I are at a disadvantage in understanding this text because we have all sorts of wonderful artificial supplies of light. 
We have great flashlights. You know, we'll stumble around using our cell phone for a light. Whatever we have to do in a dark room. We have all these marvelous artificial forms for light. But have you ever been in a place where it's absolutely dark and you don't have any access to light? That's frightening, isn't it? Now think about being on a mountain pass, traveling, and darkness falls, and you are utterly helpless. You got that fear that kind of grips your heart? You don't know if you can take a single step without disaster coming your way. Friends, this was the calamity that was going to come upon Judah in their rebellion against God. And so Jeremiah's counsel to them is, verse 15, do not be proud for the Lord has spoken. Verse 16, give glory to the Lord your God before he causes darkness. Give glory to God now. Confess your sin now. That's what he means by give glory to the Lord. That phrase is used in other places in the Old Testament in the sense of repenting and confessing your sin. He says, do it now before the darkness comes upon you. You have a little bit of daylight now. Use that to get right with God because when the darkness falls, you won't be able to find your way. But now look at the price they're gonna pay in verse 17. But if you will not hear it, My soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Say to the king and say to the queen mother, humble yourselves, sit down, for your rule shall collapse the crown of your glory. The cities of the south shall be shut up and no one shall open them. Judah shall be carried away captive, all of it. It shall be wholly carried away captive. Lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. Where is the flock that was given to you, your beautiful sheep? You know, Jeremiah speaks with a man who has a broken heart. Look at it, verse 17. If you will not hear it, my soul will weep. Friends, there is something so tragic but so admirable in the prophet Jeremiah that it speaks to a man like myself who's a preacher or a pastor. I think it speaks to anybody who has a heart for the people of God. Jeremiah had so many reasons to be hardened and bitter against the people of Judah. He preached, he preached, he preached, and they did not listen. And it's not like they just ignored him with a common difference. No, they threw him into jail. They persecuted him. They put his life on the edge. He faced all this persecution, all this difficulty repeatedly again and again and again. Jeremiah suffered for his ministry in a very intense way, but he could still weep over the destiny that was going to come upon his people. A lesser man? Dare I say perhaps someone like me? It would be much easier for us to have the added, they get what they deserve. I warned him, told you so, should have listened to me. Why didn't you listen to my warnings? See what's coming upon you? Friends, a lesser man would have had dry eyes with all the rejection that Jeremiah faced in his ministry. But friends, even though they rejected him time and time again, his heart was broken over the sinful course of the people of Judah. And in this do we not find a beautiful example of Jesus Christ, our Lord? You know, the person who's in rebellion against God, the person who's pushing him away, 
the person who's going their own way. You, you might think that Jesus, after pleading with the person, after reaching out to the person, after ministering to that person, you might think that Jesus might finally have, well, whatever, man, you deserve it. This catastrophe comes upon you because your back was turned to me. Hey, whatever, deal with it, man. You brought it on your own head. That is not the attitude of our Savior at all. He weeps with you. His heart goes out to you. He's not an I told you so kind of God. But his heart breaks right along with you, even when it's totally your fault. That's how it was for the people of Judah. And so he gives the warning. Look at it here in verse 18. Say to the king and to the queen mother, humble yourselves. This apparently speaks to the young king Jehoiakim and his mother Nehushta. This is described in 2 Kings chapter 24, who were eventually carried off into Babylon. And he says, listen, humble yourselves. The threat is coming. You guys are going to be carried away. Maybe you can lessen your guilt if you humble yourselves now. But they would not. And this would be the result, verse 18. For your rules shall collapse the crown of your glory. If they did not repent, even when they had a special responsibility to lead in repentance, then they would find themselves in this difficult place. And what would it be like, verse 20? Where is the flock that was given to you, your beautiful sheep? It's like the king and the queen mother, they were given to rule over the sheep of the people of Judah. And where are they? They've been taken, carried away to Babylon. That's where they are. The judgment of God has come upon them. This was a warning to these proud kings and royal people to repent now before the calamity came. Then verse 21, what will you say when he punishes you? For you have taught them to be chieftains, to be head over you. Will not pang seize you like a woman in labor? And if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? For the greatness of your iniquity, your skirts are uncovered, your heels made bare. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. Friends, when there's this much love, When there's this much appeal, when there's this much warning, isn't the question valid in verse 21? What will you do when he punishes you? What are you going to do? What can you say? I didn't know. What are you going to say? He never spoke to my conscience. What are you going to say? I never had any good examples around me. What will you say when he punishes you? Friends, I think about this a lot because I think about people who think There are really people who think that when they stand before God on the day of judgment, they're going to tell him a thing or two. Have you ever met people like that? You ever talked with people like that? How frightening that is. What a delusion they live under. They really think that when they stand before the Almighty, that they'll take some moral superiority and they'll tell him a thing or two. Ladies and gentlemen, what a dangerous delusion. The question of Jeremiah hits us with full force. What will you say when he punishes you? What will you say when it's all exposed, when it's all out in the open, when there's nothing more to hide? When every time you've rejected what God has offered you, every time you've stopped your ears to what he said, every time you've neglected the grace that he's given you, every time it's all laid out bare, there's nothing to respond And then he says, verse 22, and I have to say that these are difficult words to read. 
And if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? For the greatness of your iniquity, your skirts have been uncovered, your heels made bare. Friends, he's either talking about one of two things. He's either talking about a custom that they had in ancient Israel and in the ancient world. It wasn't unique to Israel. Where sometimes they would shame a prostitute by stripping her naked publicly. Okay, that's the idea. You, Israel, you've been spiritually unfaithful to God. You've been like a prostitute offering yourself to all the idols. You've committed this spiritual adultery. So God's going to treat you like that. But, but that's probably not the sense, although it's possible. The probable sense. And I say this with delicacy. There's no reason to go into this. But just to tell you that it's probably speaking about the violent violation of a woman. And probably what it's speaking about is God saying, this is what it's going to feel like to you when the judgment of God comes upon you. How horrific. How horrible. Can can you see that God is speaking in shocking, disturbing images, trying to get their attention any way they can? Friends, the easier medicine has already been given and it hasn't worked. Now now it's time to warm up those shock paddles and put it on the chest and see if somehow you can't deliver some jolt that's so shocking, so disturbing that'll wake them out of their stupor. But this is where Judah was at this time. And then he says in verse 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then... May you also do good who are accustomed to evil. Jeremiah quoted this proverb to warn the people that they were so stuck in their sinful nature that they were unable to change themselves. And you see, the answer was not first in some national reform. The answer was first in national repentance and in reliance upon the God who can change the leopard spot, who can change even the color of skin, at least in this metaphorical sense. Friends, this is the point. Evil may be so ingrained in men and women that they find it impossible to stop. Friends, I'll just answer the question. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then you also may do good who are accustomed to evil. Here's the point. You can't change yourself. But there's a transforming power in Jesus Christ that's power that's greater than what you can do yourself. Do you see that this is the great invitation of the scriptures? It's not inviting you to come and turn over a new leaf. It's inviting you to come and have Jesus Christ be the Lord and the transformer of your life. To live out 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now friends, the changes don't always come at once. And the changes aren't complete until we're glorified in our resurrection body but they should be real in the life of a believer. There should be evidence of transformation. The Ethiopian cannot change his skin. The leopard cannot change his spots, but the Lord God in heaven can transform the lives of men and women. But they would not be transformed. Verse 24, therefore I will scatter them like stubble that passes by the wind of the wilderness. This is your lot. 
the portion of your measures from me, says the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in falsehood, because you would not turn to me, I'm going to scatter you. You're going to be sent away to exile all over the Babylonian empire. Verse 26, therefore, I will uncover your skirts over your face that your shame may appear. I have seen your adulteries and your lustful neighings, the lewdness of your harlotry, your abominations on the hills and the fields. Woe to you, O Jerusalem. Will you still not be made clean? Friends, you catch that last little question there. Will you not still be made clean? I've spoken to you so strongly, I've tried to shock you with disturbing images. But still... Will you refuse to be made clean? Will you refuse what I offer to you with this open hand? Now coming into chapter 14. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the droughts. Now, let me pause right here. We in the state of California, aren't we grateful for the rain that's come just in the last couple days? What a beautiful thing. How nice it is. What a blessing from God. And I don't doubt that there's been many believers praying for many weeks, if not months, for rain to come, that God would display his mercy to this state. Because let me tell you, friends, that rain came not because the people in the state of California cleaned up their act and turned to God. That rain came as a manifestation of the mercy of God. And and whatever drought stage that we're supposedly still in, you know, whatever it is, it's not over yet. But we still need to cry out to God for his mercy. But even in the ancient world, God tried to get the attention of his people through drought. So now verse 2. Here they are in drought. And this is a very poetic and powerful description of drought. Judah mourns and her gates languish. They mourn for the land and the cry of Jerusalem has gone up. Their nobles have sent their lads for water. They went to the cistern and found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads because the ground is parched. For there was no rain in the land. The plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads. Yes, the deer also give birth in the field, but left because there was no grass. And the wild donkeys stood in the desolate heights. They sniffed at the wind like jackals and their eyes failed because there was no grass. Now, of course, drought was always a special issue for Israel, for Judah, because they lived in these lands that are much like the geography of the state of California. There's a semi-arid land. They didn't have mighty rivers. They didn't have great amounts of rainfall. They relied on the seasonal rains, just like we would in California, if it were not for our vast, elaborate irrigation systems. And so again, they relied on it just like we have to rely on it. And they were so reliant on it that it was a great temptation for them to look to the God Baal of the Canaanites. Because he was supposedly the God of the weather, the God of the rain. And that's what attracted many Israelites to the God Baal. They thought that by serving Baal, they might ensure for themselves better crops and better rainfall. But it hadn't worked. There was a drought so severe in the land that the nobles were sending out their own children to go out and do the work. They looked everywhere for water. They could find none. And it even affected the ecosystem. Look at here in verse 5. The deer also gave birth in the field but left because there was no grass. 
There's nothing to feed the deer and sustain its young calf with milk. There was nothing to do. I guess it's a fawn, isn't it, for deer? There was nothing to sustain the young fawn with milk and this tragedy. By the way, did you notice this? That man's sin and rebellion has an effect on the ecosystem. Have you ever thought about that? Listen, I, I think if you're really an environmentalist, you're going to get right with God. If you really want to bless the creation, once you, once you start, I'm not saying necessarily have to finish there, but once you start with getting right with God, because it was the lack of repentance on behalf of the people that brought a curse to the ecosystem in this particular way. Now look at verse seven, where Jeremiah is going to model godly repentance as if he's going to say this, let me show you what truly godly repentance would look like. Verse seven, oh Lord, Though our iniquities testify against us, do it for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. Oh, the hope of Israel, his savior in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land and like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man astonished, like a mighty one who cannot save? Yet you, oh Lord, are in our midst. And we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? What a beautiful prayer of repentance. Here's the problem. It was not the prayer of the people of Judah. It was the prayer of Jeremiah. He hoped it would be a model for the people of Judah. But as we're going to see in the rest of this chapter and in coming chapters, it didn't really work out that way. I love this way he describes it there in verse 7. Oh Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do it for your name's sake. Lord, I know that we're sinners. We don't deserve this display of your mercy, but for your name's sake. God, because it'll glorify you, because it'll show you as a great God, why don't you extend your mercy and your kindness to us? That's the whole attitude that he's expressing there in verse 7. And then verse 9, he says, Yet you, O Lord, are in our midst. We are called by your name. Do not leave us. I love these appeals to God's mercy, to his kindness to the people. Do not leave us, Lord, please. We're called by your name. It's a beautiful appeal to God from a very humble place. But as I said before, it wasn't the prayer of the people. It was the prayer of the prophet. And God could see what was in the heart of the people. So look at his response here in verse 10. Thus says the Lord to the people, thus they have loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore the Lord does not accept them. He will remember their iniquity now and punish their sins. Friends, you don't want that to be said of you. You want it to be said of you as God promises under the new covenant. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. If God says, I will remember your sins and iniquities, that's trouble. That's trouble. You don't want to be on that side of the equation. No, you don't want to be of those. In verse 10, it says they have loved to wander. No, and you don't want to be of those that it says, therefore the Lord does not accept them. Because this repentant one was only imagined and not real, God would not accept an unfaithful people. He would remember their sins and punish their sins. Now this, this was grieving to Jeremiah. 
Lord, Lord, I hoped I could show the way of repentance. I could be an example of it. The people haven't bit. Lord, this disturbs me so much. Look at what he says here in verse 11. Then the Lord said to me, do not pray for this people, for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. Whoa, did you see that in verse 11? Do not pray for this people. Now, there's one thing right off the bat that convicts me with that. There are many pastors and ministers who need to be commanded to pray for their people. Jeremiah was such a man of prayer that he had to be told not to pray for the people of Israel. His default position was to pray for those people that he loved. But no, no, no. Uh, He said, no, don't pray for them, people. Why? Why do not pray for them? Notice this. Because I will consume them by sword, by the fam, by pestilence. They're too far gone, Jeremiah. Don't pray for them. Now, this stirs up something within the prophet. Look at it. Verse 13, he says this. Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, you shall not see the sword, nor shall you see famine, but I'll give you an assured peace in this place. Do you see what Jeremiah is doing? She says, Lord, Lord, I know you're so angry at the people. I know you tell me not to pray for them, but God, can't you see they've been deceived by false prophets? They've had prophets in their midst that tell them, everything's going to be all right. Don't worry about the Babylonians. God's going to come through. Everything's going to be good. Don't worry about a thing. And friends, that was a very popular message to the people in Jeremiah's day. There were people who wanted to hear that message that everything was going to be all right. Don't worry about the Babylonians. No, God is going to rescue you. Everything's good. Peace, safety. Don't worry about it. There's just one problem. That was a lie. And friends, any preacher worth anything would much rather preach everything's going to be okay than fasten your seatbelt, the plane's going down. But here's the problem. When the plane's going down, you better preach that message. And Jeremiah wasn't going to lie. There were prophets who were more than willing to lie and speak falsehoods in the name of the Lord. It's a sobering thing for us to remember But you know it, don't you? That not everybody who pretends to speak in the name of the Lord is really speaking. Not everybody who opens a Bible and starts talking is really preaching the truth of God. It just doesn't work that way. It didn't work that way in Jeremiah's day. It doesn't work that way today. So so he's hoping to explain or excuse the lack of repentance on the part of God. But don't blame him, Lord. They've been deceived by these false prophets. Well, what's God going to say about that? Look at verse 14. And the Lord said to me, the the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I know I've been looking for loopholes in that one in verse 14. I just don't find it. They prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, whom I did not send, and who say sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed." Friends, isn't that a heavy judgment? Look at what it says there in verse 14. I haven't sent them, commanded them, spoken to them. They prophesy a false vision. 
Now, if it didn't come from God, where did it come from? I'm not going to say it came from the devil. Because that's not what Jeremiah says. If you look at verse 14, it says it came from the deceit of their heart. In other words, somebody may be speaking smooth words in the name of the Lord, but it doesn't come from the Lord. It comes from the wishes and the aspirations and the desires of their own heart. They speak grandiose or swelling words, hoping to gain a following, but it's not true. It's from their own heart. It's not from the Lord. What's going to happen to those prophets in the days of Jeremiah? Look at it in verse 15. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. Verse 16. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine, the sword. They will have no one to bury them, nor their wives, their sons, nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness on them. Do you see this, friends? Jeremiah hoped to excuse the people of God because of the false prophet's work. Does everybody understand that? What did God say in response? First of all, he said, I'm going to deal with those false prophets. And secondly, he said, it's no excuse. It's a heavy word for me to say. But I think it's entirely justified by the text. If you are led astray by a false prophet... God will hold you to account for that. You're not going to be able to point at the false prophet and say, hey man, it wasn't my fault. They're the one who was a false prophet. God says, I gave you the capability to judge whether or not they were a false prophet. You didn't use it. That's what he did for the people of Judah. And he said, it's going to be upon their own head. Verse 17. Therefore you shall say this word to them. Let my eyes flow with tears night and day and let them not cease for the virgin daughter of my people has been broken with a mighty stroke with a very severe blow. If I go out into the field, then behold those slain with the sword. And if I enter the city, then behold those sick from famine. Yes, both prophet and priest go about in a land they do not know. Do you see this outpouring of tears from Jeremiah? Verse 17, let my eyes flow with tears night and day. I look at the calamity that's come upon them. I look at the judgment that's come upon them. And there's no answer. There's no hope. There's no help. I am reduced to nothing but tears. Verse 19, Jeremiah is crying out to God now. Have you utterly rejected Judah? Has your soul loathed Zion? Why have you stricken us so that there's no healing for us? We looked for peace, but there was no good. And for the time of healing, but there was trouble. We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. I want you to look carefully at verses 19 and 20. He is astonished at the calamity to come. And he cries out in verse 19, Have you utterly rejected Judah? Has your soul loathed? God, it seems so severe. Do you hate us? That's the pain of the prophet Jeremiah. And I want you to know something. What is he doing right there in verses 19 and 20? He's praying. Well, I thought God told him not to pray. Friends, if there was ever a holy disobedience, it was this. God told him not to pray. He goes, I can't stop praying, Lord. 
I'm so consumed with pain over the fate of my people that I pray for them. My eyes weep for them. And I wonder, why are you rejecting us? We acknowledge, I love this phrasing. We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. This is the kind of repentance that God wanted Judah to bring before him, but they would not. They rebelled. They stayed stuck in their own sinfulness. And then the conclusion of the chapter, verse 21 and 22. Do not abhor us for your name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember, do not break your covenant with us. Are there any among the idols of the nations that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? Therefore, we will wait for you since you have made all of these. Friends, I want you to look at that line in verse 21. Do not abhor us for your name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Jeremiah looked at his people who were about to perish. The looming threat of the Babylonian invasion and exile was just on the horizon. And he can see it because he knows it. He's a prophet of the Lord. He sees it and he looks at the people and he goes, There is nothing there that would merit God rescuing them. Nothing. I look at them. I pray prayers of repentance, but they don't. I turn my heart to the Lord, but they don't. So you know what he sees? He sees nothing in the people that would arouse God to have mercy. So he appeals to God himself. And he says, Lord, if you can't see any reason in them to have mercy... Would you please look for the reasons in yourself? Now, in the big picture, God did. Because even though the Babylonians came, even though they were exiled, even though they were sorely judged, it was not the end. God brought them back into the land, and God worked through a remnant. God, in a sense, answered Jeremiah's prayer. And friends, he'll answer the prayer if you come to him on the same grounds. When Jeremiah looked at the people and saw nothing good in them to base his prayer on, he said, Lord, there's something good in you. Look at that again in verse 21. This is what he says. Do not abhor us, Lord, for your name's sake. He doesn't say do not abhor us because we're so good. No, for your name's sake, do not disgrace the throne of your glory. He doesn't say don't disgrace us. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Friends, this is a huge lesson to us and a good place to conclude on. Don't come to the Lord with this attitude or these words. Now, you're probably too spiritual to come with these words. But you might come with this attitude. You know, Lord, I'm pretty holy. Maybe you want to answer this prayer. You know, I read my Bible every day this week. I guess I've pretty much got you in debt to me. Devotional life has been pretty strong. You know, I made every Wednesday night of life groups, God, I'm doing pretty good. You know, on and on and on, whatever it is. And you come to God either with your words or in your heart based on how good you think you are. Friends, would you put that away and say, no, Lord, I want to come to you based on your name, on your glory, on the work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. That's the only way that you'll find the answer And look at the very end of verse um, 22. Therefore, we will wait for you since you have made all these. 
Friends, that's the attitude of a humbled, surrendered heart. It was the heart of Jeremiah. It wasn't the heart of Judah. But it can be your heart. Lord, I'm going to wait for you. I'm going to set my heart upon you. I'm going to come in humility, not on the basis of who I am, but on the greatness of who you are. Father, that's our prayer right here, right now. Lord, we want to disavow any trust in our own righteousness. Lord, we can think of good deeds that we've done, things that we've given, uh, people we've helped, sacrifices we've made, uh, you know, rituals we've performed. We can think of all of it, Lord. And we proclaim before you now, we don't trust in a bit of it. Instead, Lord, we trust in the glorious name of Jesus, who has wept over us in our waywardness, who has pled for us as an intercessor before your throne. We look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And we say, thank you, Lord, for his great work in our life. Thank you, Lord. We pray that the weeping of Jesus over us would have full effect before you. Do it for your glory, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.